0: here is to help you so that my death will not be in vain that my life's work will help save some other poor soul from getting mutilated if this killer does come back and he's for real there are a few things that you got to remember is this simply another sequel well if it is same rules apply but here's a critical thing if you find yourself dealing with an unexpected backstory and a preponderance of exposition then the sequel rules do not apply because you are not dealing with a sequel You are dealing with the concluding chapter of a trilogy. Trilogy. That's right. It's a rarity in the horror field, but it does exist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of The Pod and the Pendulum, a horror podcast dedicated to covering every horror movie franchise under the sun, one installment at a time. I am your host, Mike Snoonian from FilmThrills.com, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we doing
1: this morning? I am doing exceptional. Very excited about this
0: one. It is early this morning too for you out there. Like it is like the crack of dawn.
1: Oh no, dude! I just woke up like ten minutes before this started. I'm not even going to pretend.
0: Perfect. Okay, so we're in our boxer shorts on the edge of the bed. Haven't had our coffee yet. I'm just kidding. (laughs) So we're pantsless. Just let it all hang out this morning here as we are here to record. Fantastic. Um, Well, we have another co-host again with us um, today, and we are really excited to be joined by Becky Sayers, uh, one of the contributing writers over at DreadCentral.com. Also the co-director of the Sasquatch indie horror movie, The Last Buck Hunt, as well as actually one of the co-hosts of the horror trivia game at Tell Your Telluride Horror, where we get to go every year and see some really fun stuff. Becky, how are you this morning?
2: I am doing well. Uh, I, I beat Jerry, though. I woke up like 30 minutes ago, so I'm, I'm bright-eyed and bushy-tailed.
0: I woke up at five in the morning already at work to a man screaming.
2: Oh.
1: at you? No.
0: no, just <laughs> screaming that he's a wonderful man. And then he just yells go a lot. So yeah, that's my morning. Hello, everybody. So we are here after, we you know, we already tackled the first two episodes of Scream right now, and we're back to talk about Scream 3, the 2000 slasher. I, you know, of the four movies, this one is probably my least favorite. I don't hate the movie, but I'm not in love with it. Um, I kind of put a note here that I would call this movie the contractual obligation. Um, I kind of got the feeling that nobody really wanted to be making the movie by the time it came out in 2000
1: yeah i mean for me like it it just has such a different tone for me like even to the point of like it just doesn't feel like anyone's having a fun time right
2: yeah i disagree i feel like i could totally see that with nev campbell and her being absent from a lot of the movie which we can probably talk about later is certainly an indicator of her willingness to come back for a third film uh But I feel like at this point, by the third film, they were done in such rapid succession. uh, I feel like Courtney Cox, David Arquette are just having fun with it. And at this time, their relationship was their real life relationship was kind of blooming too, Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, more um, advanced than it had been earlier. So uh, I get the sense everybody is just having fun and not taking anything seriously, especially with like the dynamic between Parker Posey and Courtney Cox.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely talk about whatever Parker Posey is doing in this movie. I, you know, Parker Posey. I know, and I know, like people talk about her, how they love her in this movie. I hate her in this movie (laughs) so much. Like, I love her in the Christopher Guest movies, and she's very talented. But I just was not into whatever she was doing here.
1: Well, I think for me, I mean, it's obviously known that I'm not a fan of the series. Uh, So, like. Parker Posey's character, I like Parker Posey in most films that she's in. I mean Dazed, Confused, you know, Party Girl, mm-hmm. they're all they're all really good movies. But I can't stand like the principal characters in the first two movies. To, so to have kind of this caricature version of kind of Gale in the third one, like mm-hmm. I kind of just want to put in an ice pick in my
0: eyes yeah. and ears. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: It's you know, it's it's something else um but by the time this had come out like it had been about three years since scream 2 had come out the scream 2 came out less than one year after the first one there was that turnaround to get it out um and i think it's one of the rare sequels that doesn't suffer from a really rushed turnaround mm-hmm. time um i think in some ways it really builds on the first movie and though i don't like it more than the original scream um it's on par with it at the very least it's not too far behind it but Mm -hmm. by 2000 horror looks a lot different um the year before your two biggest horror movie hits are the sixth sense and the blair witch project um both of these very different from slasher movies one of them like a really great paranormal ghost story the other kicking off like really the first found footage movie since maybe cannibal holocaust that actually had any sort of impact whatsoever uh, on horror um although i think it would still be another decade before we really see that trend kick off but by 2000 the top horror movies look like american psycho what lies beneath and kevin bacon uh in hollow man so you're seeing i think once again these more quote-unquote adult horror movies um what Lies Beneath cost $90 million to make, but brought in almost $300 million. Mm-hmm. And I I remember seeing that in theaters, and I cannot remember a single thing about that movie except Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer were in it.
1: I remember the uh, the poster. That's it. And I I think I've seen it maybe twice in my life.
0: Mm-hmm. It's the like, bathtub, no right? Idea. That's a good yeah. hand in the yeah. bathtub. Yeah.
2: I mean, I, I remember it being... Okay, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it reminded me kind of of the '90s erotic thriller, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it felt like a return to that. Um, but it, I would say, it's it's not at the time it made a, a big splash because it was like, whoa, these high-profile actors are acting in a spooky movie. That's so rare, uh, and. You know, I think 20, 30, 40 years later, nobody's really going to remember it because it's not all that unique. No. Was there any
0: reason aside from what you would pay Harrison Ford or Michelle Pfeiffer that it would cost 90 million to make? Like, I can't remember if there were any big special effects or anything like any big set pieces that would drive it, because that's a lot of money to spend on. I mean, (laughs) that's what The Rock spends on creatine powder every month. So it's just (laughs) like it's a lot of money.
1: No, as far as I remember, I, I mean, I don't recall anything that spectacular being in the actual film. So those budgets, I mean, might've just went to Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, it it did.
2: It it definitely had a high production value. Like it looked good. Um, It was a well-shot film. um, And I think they had a list crew and cast, but beyond that, I, you know, there, there wasn't anything crazy.
0: (laughs) It just kind of fades into the background at that point. Um, The biggest slasher of the year aside from Scream 3 would be Final Destination, the first entry into that series, which I I can't wait to cover that. I really love those movies. They're so much fun. Um, Those are a ton of fun. And it's kind of neat because that's a slasher movie without a slasher killer. Um, But also under the surface, you're starting to see the first inroads of Japanese horror um, in the United States. Battle Royale is released in Japan. Um, Juan the Curse, which is actually a TV movie um, that then gets adapted into a feature film, and that's like a smash over in Japan. Um, and also uh, Ringu uh, Zero comes out. So that those films are going to have a lot more influence later in the decade overall. We're going to see a real growing trend of Japanese horror brought stateside, but they're not quite there yet. But Scream 3 really represents kind of your last gasp of um the slasher craze that kind of kicked off with scream like it's now kind of faded out at this point um and you're going to see some new trends as the decade kind of progresses so you know becky and jerry you guys are at opposite ends of the spectrum here Um, becky tell us what you like about scream 3
2: yeah uh i like that it's fun and it's leans into the comedy uh I, I don't feel like there was a ton to innovate on at the time because they were made so closely together. Uh, unlike, you know, which you'll talk more about Scream 4, but there had been such a gap in time and the cultural zeitgeist had moved on and there's new technology to kind of drive innovation in the the meta around Scream. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Scream 3 didn't really have a lot of that. Um, they They certainly... Did lean into the you know movie within a movie um, with the stab universe, which I think was really their only way to go. Uh, but I appreciate that instead of focusing on trying to somehow make Ghostface like even scarier this time, they they just uh, lean into the comedy and the characters. Uh, and I like that you can have a a character um, like Gail Weathers who's so unlikable. But yet she's this lead throughout the the whole series, um, and I know that's something Jerry doesn't like, but I love it when you can. Um, it's really rare in a slasher film, especially, to have this long stretch of characters that stay with us, flawed and all, that don't get killed, and you just get to see how they evolve. Um, and like, there's times I like Gail, and there, but I also don't like her.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. uh,
2: so I, I just appreciate. That they just let this dynamic between the characters grow and uh it's it's i remember seeing scream 3 3 in theaters when i was a teenager <laughs> and um i saw opening night and the crowd was having so much fun with it and it because we all knew these characters super well we were invested in them and Even though this film doesn't, in retrospect, do a great job of raising the stakes like the second film did, because it kind of pulls a, look, they all survived at the end, that during the experience of watching it in theaters, everyone was like gasping and um, just really on the edge of their seat because they thought that their beloved characters might perish.
0: So did you think going into it or maybe in the process of watching it that one of your core three was definitely a goner at this
2: point? Um, I thought that they would kill Gale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I knew they wouldn't kill Dewey because it was like it's like the running joke, right? That like yeah. no matter what, and and they totally play that up in this one with with the stent with the the knife that gets thrown at him, and then the handle hits him in the head, <laughs> which is dumb. <laughs> but I think it's kind of like a wink and nod at like Dewey just keeps surviving and gets lucky over and over again. Yeah.
0: And how about you, Jerry? You're coming at this from the opposite end. So tell me you know, why this film doesn't work for you. And I know you've said, like, I don't like the series all that much, but you've been pretty positive so far about the first two movies.
1: Yeah, yeah. Upon, like, revisiting them, I've actually found a decent amount of things that I, I really appreciate about the first two. Uh, the third one, though, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I've, I've not come to that <laughs> conclusion of the third one of revisiting it. Uh, For me, I watched it opening night, too. It was kind of a tradition with me and friends to go see the Scream movies opening night, even though I wasn't, like, a huge fan. Uh, It's just everything that I I think I just didn't like about the first two in one movie. Whereas the first and the second one, especially the second one, I mean, Randy's death, that was the moment when I I watched the second one where I thought, wow, there's something here. You know, like, you could take a character that you really love, and, dude, none of us, like, we didn't see that coming with randy at all the third movie the, it it plays so safe that it's just it feels watered down to me that ends by the third movie i mean there's such a huge opportunity to push it further i think in my opinion whereas what they did it became it became exactly what they were i think satiring that with the first two films like it, it feels like a scooby-doo episode to me like it's hard what to do you mean by serious. push
0: it further like when you say i would push it no, further what, like well, what,
1: what i mean do? is What I mean is, like the first film, you know, you have all these characters that you don't quite know, so you go on this journey with them. Second film, you know them better, you're attached to them. Randy dying, it's a gut punch. The third movie, like there's no danger in my opinion whatsoever, and it leans too much on the comedy to where it feels like it's an episode of like a sitcom more than a Mm -hmm. slasher movie. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I would. I think the Scooby Doo reference is. Very appropriate, Um, especially when you had Gale Weathers and – fake gale weathers kind of teaming up together and they're both wearing like matching outfits and they're bantering back and forth and it's just like ugh. it was definitely it kind of had that saturday morning cartoon vibe to it um
1: that's or either the, a cartoon vibe or even like an early 90s buddy cop movie like the hard way with james woods and michael j fox like <laughs> that shouldn't be speed
0: three you know right well, you know what's interesting there is is you you are talking about like the buddy cop movie, and really like to me the the biggest issue I have with Scream three, and there are a lot of things I like about it, but the biggest thing I have when watching it, like the experience, is like it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's playing in horror movies anymore. and the first two movies, when they're talking about you know, like the references are all you know geared towards horror movies, geared towards genre films overall. This time, it's more of a parody of, like, say, a Get Shorty type of movie overall. It yeah. feels like it wants to be like a you know a David uh, Mamet film and not like a horror movie film anymore. And you're getting this like spoof of you know Hollywood culture, and to me, that's just not that interesting. Um, so I just could never. I just didn't find myself as invested. The other thing with it too is, you know, Becky, you made a really good point that like for three movies, you're following this core group of characters around, you get to watch them grow, you get to see them do all these different things. And that made the impact of them getting, you know, killed off in the first movie and the second movie, very impactful, you can really feel it, it was shocking. In Scream Three, like you're basically getting introduced to a bunch of characters very quickly, and then very quickly they're getting knocked off, and there's no sort of connection there. I I just didn't feel any sort of connection there at all with any of them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, so I think another way to look at it too, and is that Scream Three is really even though um, Sydney isn't in the movie as much, and it really starts more with um, really gale driving a lot of the story I'd say the heart of the movie is about Sid's trauma and um I think after the first two films one way to look at this movie is that she deserves a happy ending (laughs) Mm -hmm. and and they were thinking that this was going to be the concluding trilogy right so she's already gone through so much on the one hand you could look at it yeah it's a missed opportunity not to like kill off a main character and make us go oh shit but on the other hand uh when i watch the end of this film i get the sense that the filmmakers also love these characters so much that it's like let's let's just let them have a happy ending for a change we don't have to follow the slasher formula to achieve. to where um you know like when randy gives the rules about the third film they don't actually apply to the movie The movie we're watching, right? Like he says, oh, this is a concluding chapter in a trilogy. All bets are off. Main characters will die. That doesn't happen. Right. <laughs> um, and maybe he knew that actually it wasn't going to be the concluding chapter. It was actually going to be a, a, hi- a hiatus in between when we have a fourth film. But um, yeah, I, and I actually appreciate that they instead kind of, Honor the characters in a way, and and let them these characters we love so much just just be at the end. When it's a, it's a powerful moment when Sydney sees the door open at the end, and that is usually in a slasher film when you expect a big jump scare to happen, right? Like think of the end of I Know What You Did Last Summer when the you know killer breaks through the shower glass for some odd reason, um, <laughs> and instead she smiles, leaves the door open, finally saying. I can rest now. Uh, I love the ending to
0: this movie too. Yeah, I think and it's I had a right. note of The marriage as
2: well. proposal is so sweet. I don't mm-hmm. care if it's cheesy. I love these characters. I want to see them happy.
1: Right. Well, I think that door opening ending, I mean, like you said, it, it is It's a good touch. And I think it is about her trauma. My only issue, I think, is that the movie, everything before that moment doesn't quite give the character like a fitting end. You know, like, uh, I know it's. I know it was divisive, but that's what I love so much about last year's Halloween. Like the entire movie was about Laurie Strode doing that, and it, it gave a lot of uh, character growth within the film to do that. Whereas Scream Three, in my opinion, it just it relies so much on just like comedy and slapstick stuff that I, I think that the opportunities kind of missed to give a character as strong as Sydney that really good you know bow.
0: I do think I that like... this before oh, the be- no problem. So I do think that before Halloween twenty eighteen comes out. This movie does an actually a really good job of exploring the main character's trauma, and I think it does it in a way that feels earned based on what she went through in the first two movies overall. I think the scene where she's kind of revisiting her childhood home, quote unquote, when she's on the movie set, um, and the way that Nev Campbell plays that is like absolutely fantastic, and you can see that she's really shaky and hurt and traumatized, and I think that that makes the payoff. All that much better, um, similar well, she's to, great. yeah, she's and it's it's a shame she doesn't really enter the movie until about the I think it's like the fifty minute mark of about a two hour movie. Um, but you know, that and that she, after the events of the second movie, like she's retreated. She's actually gone back um taken herself out of society. She's completely cut off from everybody. Um, very few people actually can get in touch with her, similar to what happens in Halloween 2018. This feels really earned. Um, and I, you could really kind of buy into and believe it.
1: Mm-hmm. One thing that I do want to get out there, though, especially for Becky, like I in no way want to just like trash this movie. Well, we will. You know, with with someone that, you know, actually appreciates it. So I, I hope it doesn't come across that
2: way. Oh, no, no. I like healthy discussion. And, right. and from my side, Scream 3 is objectively the worst <laughs> of the Scream franchise. Um, so, but for me, just thinking about it from a fan and having kind of grown up with the movies, mm-hmm. uh, I think about my journey and yeah. um, how much I really appreciated some of the things that they did. And, and you know, thinking Halloween is my favorite movie of all time, the 1978 one. Yeah. Um, I, I, I liked the 2018 remake, but I actually feel like Scream 3 does a better job <laughs> at uh, chronicling the PTSD and trauma, uh, because I feel like in Halloween, Lori Strode becomes a caricature, like it's almost over the top with the way she's sequestered herself and has, like, amassed an armory and... and quadruple locked all the doors whereas I feel like Sid the way she's um retreated into the woods is a bit more believable and uh-huh. uh I, I like the ways that where you get to see her confronted with her past and questions about like the complicated questions about her mom I think is is much more fascinating in some ways than what they did with Halloween like, there's a great scene when uh, Sid is talking to her dad, which is awesome that it's the same character, uh, actor, playing her dad again from the first film. <laughs> he, like, he's a bit character in the first film, and here he is playing another bit part in Scream 3, um, which just was is a nice continuity to make the world feel real. But, you know, she has this moment where she's almost blaming her mom for everything that's happened. And, you know, she's like, none of this would have happened if she hadn't, and she trails off. But really what she's saying is if she hadn't cheated on you, dad, or, uh, you know, or like you could take that one step further being like, if my mom wasn't a slut, this wouldn't have happened, uh, which I think raises all sorts of interesting questions. And they um, kind of explore that theme even more with everything that is happening with the Milton director character and Hollywood. Uh, at at that time, um, sort of preying on young women and taking advantage of them and saying, well, it's their fault. They were asking for it. Anything, you know, that happens thereafter, whether or not they're asking for it, whether or not they were raped, or in Sydney's case, uh, the resulting events lead to years and years of trauma and being stalked by killers, like how many people want to kill Sydney Prescott? Oh, my God. Um, But uh, I, I think, Scream 3 is full of a lot of interesting material, and I agree mm-hmm. that they probably could have dived into it in a more serious way, and some of the comedy maybe does detract from it. But I think it's still there, and um, in some ways really ahead of its time even for um, you know, bringing that stuff up.
0: I agree with that, and I think what I like about... In, in terms of rewatching it, and I'm going to be honest, I don't think I would have been as aware of this when I first watched the movie. I don't know when I became more aware, but the way it gives like Sydney mother, Sydney's mother, her story back. Okay. Um, the first two movies, like she is the catalyst. Her own behaviors, she's the catalyst for Billy and Stu becoming murderers. Um, it's her the anniversary of her death that kicks off the events of the movie overall, and her actions before that. Um, that, you know, they kind of blame her for her own death. And the second movie, it's Billy's mother and the fact that she can't get over her son's death and also, you know, the fact that Maureen was sleeping with her husband is what kicked it off. This movie, it does give that, gives her story back to her and it's it posits, like, because of what she experienced, finding physical comfort in other people is basically, like, how she got comfort yep. and also how she defined herself and her worth. And it was because she was like, really damaged by these horrific events. And I think it's, I don't want to say ironic, but it's interesting that this is, you know, this is a Weinstein brothers production <laughs> at that point. And See,
1: mm-hmm. if, if that had been the backstory and motivation the entire time, I think that would have been extremely powerful, but having like the whole, like exposition and backstory retconned every single movie by the time i got to the third movie i was just like oh so it wasn't billy being upset about her mom it wasn't the wife being upset about Mm -hmm. the mom now it's the brother being pissed about the mom like it it just by the third movie like that scene came up when the killers were revealed and i'm like what yeah well that's that's it
0: the half brother being uh roman being the one that's like you know, Machiavelli and pulling the strings behind the first thing. I'm sorry, but
1: Scott Foley cannot be a mastermind in anything.
0: No, No, I agree with that. I I definitely agree with
2: that. I think that's a flaw with the series as a whole, right? Is that it's like, and and I kind of get back to that flipping question, like how many people want to kill Sidney Prescott? Yeah. Whatever. Like she's (laughs) the unluckiest person. I, I do like that they went with one killer though in this one, which is, unique for the series well it's
1: interesting because the viewers like constantly looking for a second movie uh-huh. or a second killer to be revealed and it's not so i'm i like that uh part of it
2: yeah we found something jerry likes <laughs> awesome.
0: there there we be, got, there's there, one there'll be more there's always one thing um, we'll get into the soundtrack no, oh jeez <laughs> this yeah it's this oh
2: creed yeah
0: <laughs> who is the is it is creed the band that's playing when cotton mather is killed
2: uh well oh. it's it's when uh she's um cotton's girlfriend is walking yes and it's one of the songs that's played that she has to turn off um
1: yeah. they really loved creed during that era i mean they like Merrimax just loved creed with a passion
0: creed this, sold a
1: Halloween lot of H2O. records
0: they sold a lot of records and it's really it's oh you know aside from the election of donald trump the population of the popularity of creed i think years from now when historians look back at the our you know our time on this planet they're gonna be that's the those are the two things that are gonna stump them the most i think you know
1: what's funny is i still have the photo that i took uh, at fantastic fest 2015 at the debates uh Oh, I can't. I can't remember who. I can't remember who it was. But the debate was whether the film Creed should have to change its name because uh, of disrespecting the legacy of the great band Creed. And I have a, And I was laughing my ass out. Off. I was in the press area taking photos, and I look over during that joke, and Guillermo del Toro and Reffin were cracking up about a Creed joke. Love and it. And to this Beautiful. day, to this day, I have that photo of these two. Awesome filmmakers, like, just cracking up over fucking Creed. That's beautiful.
2: <laughs> I, I admit, I, I had a Creed CD. Did
1: I'm you? I did I, cool. did.
2: I think their first album was good. I, I was, I'll stand by it. My Own Prison still is a good song. <laughs> I won't carry it yet.
0: <laughs> God, I'm already having fun with this one. So I'm doing my deep <laughs> breaths. I'm taking doing some mindfulness exercises right now as we... <laughs> discuss this I
1: oh. that is, is that on the one, one
0: that had uh, that is, is that the one that had me on
2: here if i admitted that before right
0: <laughs> you could not have stunned me more if if my wife were to walk in the room right now and say Ader is not your kid i would be stunned less
2: <laughs> oh yeah uh also nickelback's first album is good jesus <laughs>
0: podcast <laughs> over we're done there's nothing more to say here
2: <laughs> oh god oh come on no that's cool that's cool, that's cool. everyone has yeah. things Everyone was listening to Nickelback at the time. Everyone liked it. Now everyone pretends like they never liked them. It's like, uh-huh. how'd they sell so many records then?
1: Oh, I like a lot of bad music. It's just, I just think that just band was not, never that's wonderful. where you draw the line.
0: Yes. Yeah. I, I enjoy some very terrible music, but I definitely draw the line at Nickelback. The stuff <laughs> I like is terrible in different ways. Um, okay. Like I owned, I think two albums by the band Urban Dance Squad, who had that one song, <laughs> Deeper Shade of Soul. I think I own like a live album by them. Wow! Um, oh my god, I remember I, that. I will still listen to them every now and then and stand by it, but Nickelback is where I draw the line.
2: Oh, fair enough. We all know that the Scream Two had the best soundtrack, though.
0: Oh god! We had that discussion. You know? Oh my lord!
1: Come on, Everclear. <laughs> I I am still just confused by David Urquhart's slam poetry song on that.
0: <laughs> I oh, do miss. Yeah. I do as much as we'll rag on it. I do miss soundtracks being a thing, because they're really uh, not. Yeah, I
1: like that was you. my favorite thing. I, I loved going to like you know the record stores and buying whatever soundtrack. A lot of times I would buy the soundtrack before the movie came out, so I'd yeah. be a huge fan of a soundtrack and I'd watch the movie and be really disappointed.
0: I've yeah. never like Spawn, Crow. Like, <laughs> I've never watched the Crow. I've probably had the soundtrack on like tape and CD, like, but yeah. I've never actually watched the movie. One. Oh man,
1: those first I, two I, soundtracks for The Crow. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I accidentally I bought a vinyl of the Crow soundtrack thinking it was gonna be like
1: <laughs> Nine Inch <laughs> Nails. Know,
2: that, that soundtrack. It was, it, and then it was the score, and I was like, oh, <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad score. It's just cool. I really wanted, yes, yeah, Nine Inch Nails, but this will do. <laughs>
1: oh soundtracks oh, we could soundtrack. have a whole episode on soundtracks man we
0: really could i think that'll Spawn, be a Patreon episode. judgment
1: day pump up the volume The judgment Which day Jesus.
0: soundtrack is so good i, I what's first. funny
2: oh judgment day the rap
0: rock i was i was in
1: uh my wife and i were driving somewhere yesterday and we make playlists for every single time we get in the car mm-hmm. and for some weird reason i felt inclined to put some songs from the judgment day soundtrack on it
0: and dude, De La Soul my... in teenage bandwagon.
1: Oh dude. Booya Tribe and Faith No More. Oh, oh my god. So oh my god. Another body murdered. It's... I put that on and my wife my wife's a good like 11 years younger than me. So she she d- didn't grow up with like Judgment Day and all that stuff. So she she had this weird look that I was like putting on like Limp Bizkit or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I had to tell her like no, this is from Judgment Day.
0: It's okay. Or Judgment
1: Night. Judgment.
2: Yep. Yeah, I was going to I was going
1: to cry. Yeah, it's not Terminator <laughs> Judgment Night.
2: Yeah
0: still tired yeah, i i will i love that soundtrack i, I mean to say anything soundtrack um like you said pump up the volume like there were so many good ones back and now you really just i don't think you get that anymore but yeah. you don't respond right. this is my old man ranting in a cloud moment right now it's <laughs> movie soundtracks um all right so i wanted to talk really briefly about how scream 3 came about if that's good yeah Yeah, I'd prefer to
1: because I mean the history behind it and like you know Williamson and Kruger and all that stuff I think it's
0: it's good it's really fascinating because it feels like Miramax like they're not super gung-ho about even making a movie Um, even though the first two they make like 350 million bucks between them and they cost less than 40 million to make and that's before you factor in like VHS tapes and DVD sales and all that fun stuff Um, So the movie's in development, but Kevin Williamson is at this point working on Dawson's Creek and a bunch of other movies. So he's getting pulled in a ton of different directions. He basically says, here's my treatment for Scream 3, but I'm not going to be on board to write the script. His treatment is radically different from the end product, and it kind of looks like what Scream 4 would eventually become. The biggest takeaway I got when researching this that I had no idea about was Matthew Lillard would have been back as Stu in Scream 3. Got he would him. have survived getting a 150-pound television <laughs> dumped right on his skull, which is some Jason Voorhees-level shit right there.
1: Maybe he would have had just, like, a neck brace.
2: <laughs> <laughs> or a cone or, of shame. Or <laughs>
0: right. a band-aid. Just a Band-Aid right above, like, the right eyebrow.
1: Texas Chainsaw 3.
0: I feel yeah. like he would have had, like, an ear, an eyebrow ring, being the year 2000 at that point.
2: Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and some blue hair.
0: Oh, and some, blue like, hair. hot bondage pants. but attacker's crew shirt. Yeah. So he would have been um, pulling the strings from behind the scenes in prison, and he would have been communicating with a group <laughs> of kids from Woodsboro.
1: See, that's um, funny, because I just can't picture, like, Stu basically being lender. Yeah. Like, Stu, like with his awful sweater in the first film,
0: but especially <laughs> by now, like is he playing um, Shaggy from Scooby Doo by now, or is that a few years later?
1: I think that's that's later. That was like what two thousand
0: and two, two thousand three. So not I- too far away, but like when I think of Matthew Lillard, the two things I think of, and I like Matthew Lillard, but I think of him as Stu, and I think of him as like Shaggy from the Scooby Doo yeah. movies and the cartoons. I don't think of him as Hannibal Lecter um, pulling the strings from behind the scenes.
1: What's crazy is he's had such a good uh, career in the last few years with like mm-hmm. choosing roles that are so different than what we all kind of knew of him in the 90s. I
2: well, mean, he uh, now,
1: too. What's that? he's a director too now. Yep. What has he directed? Fat
2: Kid. Yeah. Which oh, is yeah. Awesome.
1: That's right. That
2: was good. That was a fun movie.
1: Yeah. Highly
0: that, recommend it.
1: There's that. I mean, uh, his, he had that very small role in uh, Descendants with George Clooney that was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I thought he was great in the newest season of Twin Peaks. Like, he's a good actor. I just feel like everything in this era, the Scream era, like, they didn't really give him much to work with. No. Yeah.
0: But I, I would have enjoyed seeing him back. I really would have. Um he would have been like working behind the scenes and a bunch of kids from Woodsboro would have been committing murders again, except at the end of the movie, Sydney would have walked into like the living space or the room or whatever. And all of the dead kids would have gotten up at once. Like it was all an elaborate plot, um, to lure Sydney out of hiding and to fake her out and to kind of like kill her off basically. Although I'm sure she would have survived it. Um, so that is the treatment that, um, Williamson writes, which I think is like a really and it's kind of what Scream 4 becomes, but not quite to that level. Unfortunately, um Columbine happens. Um it's really the first mass school shooting that's reported as widely as it is. Um it's a really horrific event that we still, you know, feel reverberations of like two decades later. And all of a sudden, like violent movies, violent video games, all this other media is getting like relitigated again um, in the media and in press. Miraback starts questioning if they even want to make the movie anymore. They decide to scrap the script. Um, the studio dictates they don't want any on-screen violence. They don't want any blood. Um What they want to do is lean much heavier onto the comic aspects of the film. Craven steps in and says, look, if I'm going to make another Scream movie, it's got to be violent. It's got to be bloody. So he does get his way on that. Although this film, as you know, Becky, as you stated, and Jerry, you stated, it, it does lean much heavier into the comedy. Ethan Kruger is brought in. He's a friend of Bob Weinstein's. He's given five weeks, basically, to turn out a script. And he turns out like get shorty meets i don't know like prom night basically for a script is how i would look at it but in fairness to him he has like a month to basically bang this thing out before it goes in front of the cameras
1: well what happens in that is i feel like having aaron kruger in there and i know he gets the brunt of everything i know like people first person that everyone points at but with that being said i mean the weinsteins like they approved that script. You know what I mean? Like like it's so different than the first two films before it. And I understand not wanting to do the same thing again. But I, I also think that when that happens for like, say the Friday the thirteenth franchise, when it steers off veers off and goes to a completely different direction, that's where that series suffered. And with Screen Three, even though I'm not a huge fan of the first two, I appreciate them for what they are. They're very important films in, in horror history, and I, I appreciate, you know, the techniques, the, the performances and stuff. They just weren't for me, whereas Scream 3 is the first one in the series that I just actively don't like. Mm-hmm. Like, it just feels – it feels like it's not even in the same series. Like, you know, like, the blood. That's – I mean, and what we talked about the previous episodes. Like, Scream was never afraid to be just a bloody movie. You know, and everything that yeah. came after it was kind of watered down. Scream 3 feels like those movies that came after the first Scream that were watered down.
2: Yeah, it, it, it definitely does. does. It, it definitely does. And, um, like, one thing I lo- I've i always loved about the Scream films is it has really simplistic violence in it, but it's mm-hmm. very brutal. Like, the, the knife wounds, you feel each one of those. You know, yeah. Like the combination of the way it's shot, the sound effects, the the gore effects, where it feels like realistic violence um even if it's kind of in a total unrealistic package as a whole and very theatrical presentation uh it just like you know the drew barrymore getting stabbed however many times she gets stabbed in that first scene is is like it's hard to watch uh and um and, and, you know, and, and it keeps, it does that pretty well in the first and the second film. And in the third film, I feel like the only kill in it that feels even close to that is the, the opening one with Cotton. Um, which I think it's, that scene's done overall fairly well. Um, and it's, uh, you know, a killing off a major character, even if he's not necessarily part of the the principal crew. He's He's kind of become more important over time. And... I feel like his death is pretty impactful, but then it never really lives up to that with any of the other kills. The rest of them are pretty like unmemorable.
1: His death is very impactful. I think. Uh, I think my issue with it is, being the third film in the series, you know what's going to happen at the beginning, right from the beginning. Like you know, <laughs> yes. you like it's kind of it's walking the into the movie. Exactly. <laughs> Whereas the first film and even the second film, watching that, I was just you know on the edge of my seat because the first film you have no idea what you're getting into. Second movie has such a just brilliantly written opening with Omar (laughs) Epps and Jada Pinkett. Like it's so good. Whereas you walk into the third film, you're like, Oh, well there's cotton. Now I know how this is going to play out.
2: Yeah. Though the one thing that was unique is they introduced the voice changing mechanic in it, which I remember seeing was kind of confusing on my first watch. And I was like, wait, what's going on? Like, like I, I was like, is, is Cotton a a killer? Like, I I legitimately was a bit confused and, like, not sure what was happening Um, when, like, it's his voice that's, you know, behind the door when um, his girlfriend's being attacked. So I thought that they did a kind of, like, an interesting fake-out there, and it felt very different than the other openings. But it's not nearly of the caliber as the other, the previous two films um but in the in the tradition of scream films the opening is often like the best part of the movie right. uh, I do like I that like aspect mm-hmm. I
0: I did like the aspect of cotton in his voice getting used. Cause I thought that added to his like partner's terror of the moment and the confusion yeah. of it. Um, and I like how it plays out when he eventually does come home and she doesn't trust him. Um, and basically that's why he's taken out. Like he gets the, you know, five iron off the skull. Um, and then she's killed off at that point. Um, so I really like the way that played out. I thought that definitely added to it overall. And it's like a very physical scene. Um, so, you know, I don't really mind that they have a very similar formula. I think that's kind of the the signature of the film. Like when I watch a Friday the 13th movie, like I know that the opening 10 minutes are going to be de- I know devoted to like a very silly way to bring Jason Voorhees back to life, but I don't mind that it's like comfort food at that point. Um And I kind of like enjoy the way, although I think this one's a little bit more bombastic with the helicopters and like trying to fight their way through traffic. Um, But once it settles into his condo area and it's just him, his girlfriend and the killer, like I actually like the way that plays out. So there are a few things I do like about this movie. Um, What are your thoughts on the confrontation between Sydney and Ghostface where they're in Woodsboro, when they're in like the Woodsboro set?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I I think it's one of the stronger scenes. I you uh, mentioned it earlier, Mike, that it's like a really good instance of like Sydney having to directly confront her memories and trauma from the first film. And it really lets that moment play out and lets us be with her. Um, and a lot of it's more emotional than it is scary at first. Like they, they don't like skip ahead to making it suspenseful. Uh, and it felt very scream to me too, the way it's kind of recreated that, that, that moment for her when she's attacked, uh, it, uh, so I really appreciate it. And in some ways it's almost a nod to what we'll see in the fourth film, even though it's not intentionally so like the idea of the remake, um, and, uh, so I I like that moment. I think it's very, like, um, satisfying as an audience to see it and go through that with Sydney. Like, because you're also remembering everything from the film at the same time as her. So it feels like a very good moment to connect with with, and meet a character where they're at emotionally.
1: That's actually one of the scenes that I, I do appreciate in Scream 3. I think it's very solid. Uh, It does kind of have a throwback to, you know, the first film. Uh, I think it's good for fans. Uh, It never feels... That's a scene that, even though it's somewhat reminiscent of what we've seen before, it never feels like it's fan service. It feels, like, important to the the journey in Scream 3. So Mm -hmm. I, I think it's cool.
0: One thing I like about this scene now, even more than I did back when I first watched it and just thought it was a really kind of like a fun set piece was like the way that Sydney has to confront her old life. Like is kind of one of the ways you would actually work with a trauma patient. Um, you would do something called flooding with them where let's say you're someone who doesn't like to cross over bridges. You as a patient would, cross over bridges again and again and again until you're no longer afraid of it. And you would do so like in a really controlled and safe environment. So, okay. you know, minus the fact that you have somebody in a master trying to kill her, like bringing her to a set like this is a way that you would actually treat someone like Sydney in order to get over their trauma. You would kind of come face to face with it in a really controlled environment like this where you could leave at any moment. So I kind of really liked that, you know, watching it back this time. Um, And it's really fascinating to kind of watch her have to kind of deal with her trauma as she runs through it, because there's, two ways you can kind of work with someone you could either have them do something like this or you can not confront it at all and say like okay what do you need to do to get through today like what's going to get you out of bed functioning at work functioning in your life um and for some people it's like I don't want to deal with this right now it's like great that's another way we can go about doing it so you kind of saw Both sides of that in this movie um, with Cindy working out of her home, isolated from everybody because that's where she felt safe and secure versus now having to confront her past head on. So I really, really enjoyed that part of it.
1: I think that same approach is, I mean, obviously we'll talk about this when we get to this series, but I think that same approach is why I have such a hatred for Halloween H2O and a love Mm -hmm. for the new one is (laughs) because those two movies approached Laurie Strode's PTSD in very opposite ways. Very whereas different Halloween, ways. Halloween H2O, she was kind of yeah. hiding and running from it, whereas 2018, the whole movie, she's running straight towards her trauma to deal with it. And mm-hmm. and you, you guys are right. Uh, Scream 3 does do that for Sydney. And all the things I just dislike about it, uh, yeah, I mean, there's quite a few. But the things that it does get right I think are really good, and the confrontation between Sydney and Ghostface is good. And <laughs> Uh, In the notes, like that was Craven's edition, right?
0: Yeah, that was not in the script. Um, Craven was like I want this in the movie I think it would really add to it so you know one thing about the Scream 2 and Scream 3 Scream 3 in particular is they were getting their pages like the day of the shoot like this movie was rewritten over and over again Um, part of it was you know to protect the ending of the film uh, which I kind of think is a bit silly but part of it was like they knew they needed to kind of beef up or improve on something so this was purely a West Craven even I
2: go ahead I was gonna say go it's a really it's a really good ad and I kind of wanted to build on what uh Mike was saying one of the things I really like about this movie is that I feel like of all the films it really puts Sid in power <laughs> like she it's her choice to actually come back right whereas in the other films she doesn't have a choice in it she is a victim and um You know, in the second one, you kind of start to see her come up with some tools and devices for working through, uh, you know, maybe some of the paranoia from the first film. You know, she gets her caller ID set up. But in this film, you really see her at the start, you know, kind of hiding from her past a bit. But she's also trying to find ways to turn something meaningful from the events that happened to her. Um, you know, by helping others that have been in traumatic situations, since she's on that, you know, um, kind of does the the like uh, I guess what's an operator for uh, a trauma service hotline. Uh, so I mean, you see her taking um, ownership of um, her own recovery process a lot in this film, and uh, you know, there's a moment when she arrives in. LA to um and is reunited with Gail and Dewey they're like why are you here and she's like well I really didn't have a choice so I I'm back and it's, I like that she reinserts herself and then um she doesn't really ever play a victim in the movie <laughs> like right. she's pretty strong throughout and um especially in the final scene at the mansion you just see her um kind of like she's not really afraid of of the killer and of her half brother like she's kind of accepting and understanding of the situation oh, she's um,
0: over it by that,
2: she's over it yeah so I well, think that's, that's a, one really cool that, film in that way
1: that's a great thing about that character in general and i i can totally see why uh, the character of sydney would resonate with so many people she's never a victim in that entire series she's mm-hmm. the one person that never allows herself to be a victim I mean, straight from the first film, Sydney's the character that just gets stuff done and takes care of business, and you know, fights to the death. Like, yeah. I think the character's great, and I know the more I talk about it, the more I'm saying like really nice things about the Scream series. But <laughs> Sydney's always Sydney's always been a character, you know. It was it Sydney and Stu were the characters that I've always appreciated, you know, in the series, and I I think three is a good example of, like you said, uh, you know, not being a victim.
0: I think the character of Cindy Prescott is 20 years of slasher movies before it, looking at that final girl character and pulling the things you really like from that trope, but also saying, here are some of the weak spots of it. And you know what? We can get rid of those weak spots and create a more rounded, more human, really empowering character overall. So I think that she... You know, throughout all four movies, I do think that Nev Campbell's performance and the way she plays Sydney is like probably the best thing about the series overall.
1: Agreed. Oh, most definitely. I-
0: So I want to talk about one other thing I do like about the movie, and it does lean into the Scooby-Doo aspect of it, which I've been really hard on. I fucking love Lance Henriksen's house as John Milton, the producer. Like, I love that it has all these weirdo secret passages and, like, sex orgy rooms and, like, you know, basements filled with old horror props. Um And it's, like, all this, like, weird wooden paneling and these, like, bolted doors. Like, give me, like, give me a trilogy just set in that house. And I'm (laughs) fucking happy, man. I love, I love that. And I know, like, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Like, I don't like the Scooby-Doo bullshit of the movie. And I think, like, Parky Posey's character is, like, the worst. But I do love, like, that last act set in that house. I just wanted to explore every bit of that. Well,
1: there's a lot. There's, that's a thing. Scream 3, it, I mean, it's it's an awful movie. But at the same time, there are quite a few things in it that, I mean, are easy to appreciate. As a horror fan, why wouldn't you just go nuts over seeing a, a, a location in a film that has that? I mean, secret passages and all, all that stuff. Like, it's fun watching those scenes. It's just the reveal that happens around those scenes that yeah. makes you want to like, just jump sure. out of a bridge.
2: Yeah, I feel like the whole film is kind of, um, you know, like the whole idea of Hollywood is magic. I feel like the the film uh, really likes magic tricks. And so it's it's kind of obsessed with the idea of of Hollywood magic a bit. And so there's a lot of tricks in the movie, right? And a lot of that is, happens in that house where there's, ooh, these secret passageways and all of that. And I think a lot of it's just kind of, it's satirical of Hollywood, but it's also totally being a Hollywood film and that it's mm-hmm. constantly like tricking you, like with the whole voice changing mechanic, it's this super gimmicky Hollywood thing to have, you know, it's like mission impossible with the masks, uh, which is why it doesn't, it feels a bit weird in a screen movie. Uh, but, I, but I think by the third film, they were just wanted to channel all of like getting as meta as they could and since it is about like the stab films and and hollywood taking on these real stories quote-unquote um and then just turning them into a production that is full of uh you know hollywood magic and the tricks of the trade i think the whole film is kind of a, a metaphor <laughs> with that and so i mean i i'd like the location um i i I'd, I dig that part of it. I don't think they utilized it nearly as much as they could have. It feels like a few of the things, it just kind of like happens. Things just happen to the characters or are like, oh, I found the secret passageway on accident.
0: Well, it um, needed a dumbwaiter scene for sure. Yeah, yeah. Every film like this needs a dumbwaiter scene when you have a house like that. And it needed yeah. like a trapdoor laundry chute thing where you go sliding down yeah. into some sort of pit. Yeah. Otherwise, it's all bullshit. Yeah. Well, a uh, th- thing about Scream Three that drives me
1: nuts is it feels to me like it's the first film in that series that doesn't give its audience proper credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it throws in everything that they think viewers want or expect, not realizing that you can't just shove things in there. Randy, his videotape, there's no reason for it ex- for it to exist in Scream Three. Randy would have, like, thought ahead far enough to go, you know what, I might be murdered, so I need to send videos at multiple timelines. Like, there's no reason for Randy to be in it. There's no, like, the whole reveal, like, it takes the impact of the first two films away. I mean, basically, Roman saying that he's Sydney's brother, like, it completely kills, you know, Billy and Stu coming after Sidney, you know, just... Because of Marine Prescott. It kills so many things because it's – the reveal, I think, just really damages what came before it.
0: Well, another problem with the reveal is that there's no connection or interaction between the characters before At that all. movement. So they never, like, when he takes off his mask, he's like, ta-da! She's like, I've never met you before in my She's
1: life. She's like, who are you? Are you, like, a waiter or something? Yeah. yeah.
0: So, that like, so like the juice serve me my coffee at Starbucks on the way over? You know, like,
2: I so it's like, it I wants to... Did I you enough? Oh
0: God, yeah, just... It wants <laughs> yeah. to make it this big moment, but... Like, I'm, just, I'm sorry, I didn't there. watch Felicity.
2: Yeah, and, and they Well, did. <laughs> she cut her
0: hair by then, though. Like, by that point, Carrie uh, right. Russell had cut her hair... So I stopped watching after she came here. You know her what? Head. This is just bullshit. I will
1: I will defend Felicity to the end. That's one of my favorite shows of all time.
0: The first season is out. <laughs> it's like Riverdale. The first season of Riverdale is great. After that, I'm like, yeah, I, I don't need any more. Yeah. Sorry, guys.
2: <laughs> no, it's okay. Was was that your re- version of the Creed and Nickelback reveal? <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It, it doesn't
2: seem as as a. Uh... Offensive as mine apparently. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh boy. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, we're we're talking about like what were we talking about in Scream Three? The Randy reveal and yeah. and it not being. Um... Yeah,
1: man Randy, all the R's.
0: Roman. Yeah.
2: And Roman. Oh yeah, and I, I did want to say something about like the how weak it was to have. Roman be revealed as the the killer because they do a really good job of actually throwing you off and making you think it's not him I I will say like it it doesn't if you watch the movie you like maybe you know like they they throw like the red herrings out everywhere because it's screams movies are whodunits right (laughs) they very much are and um so you're always looking for who it might be and it almost feels like cheating the way they reveal it, um being him because you have no real reason to suspect him right. because there's no interaction with him in Sydney because they do almost too much um towards like his whole fake death when, like, Gail, like checks you know, his pulse checks his pulse, yeah. yeah. and like, it just feels like cheating at that point. And you know, in a movie, like there's a good way to do a twist to where, you don't necessarily um, see it coming, but there's enough little breadcrumbs along the way that when the moment it's revealed, you're like, Oh my God, I see it now. That's the best way to do it. Right. That's good writing is when you can, you know, you just, the everything coalesces and there's a big aha moment. It's not good writing when you, don't really explore a character or drop any hints or have it make logical sense <laughs> really through the progression. And you just, it, that, that's a slap in the face to the viewer, right? Because it doesn't give them a chance to get invested and be solving the puzzle along the way. It is essentially, you know, like cheating.
0: <laughs> it's almost like they drew a name out of a hat and said, this is what yeah. we're going to go with. Like it doesn't feel right. earned. At all, yeah, and I think that's a
2: big thing. Could have been her half sibling in this movie. Yeah.
0: In well, that's the other thing too. Is like you meet Randy's sister, and like they make it a big deal. Like, oh my God, it's Randy's sister. It's like I've never seen this character right. in two and a half movies. Like, this is not a reveal.
2: Right, right, right. It's a weird moment.
1: Well, the reveal. It reminds me, and I uh, we talked about this in the last episode. It reminds me of how much I just don't really care for the first Friday Thirteenth film. Only because, like, when Miss Voorhees shows up at the end as the killer, you're like, wait, who are you? Yeah. Like, it's just – there. Roman was in the movie, obviously, but, like, there was nothing – like, there's nothing compelling about that character. And when you find out that he's the killer, it's it's a big letdown. I, I also do think, though, it's funny that they gave us Patrick Dempsey as basically the red herring. Whereas I remember seeing that in the theater, mm-hmm. thinking, like –
0: He's so why... handsome. That's what you were thinking. No, no, he's no. no, no. So I'll handsome. get to that. No, is what handsome. I was
1: thinking in the theater was like, wait, why is someone pa- like casting Patrick Dempsey in like a character that's not like a big nerd? Because I grew up watching, you know, like <laughs> Can't Buy Me love. love or all those movies. and mm-hmm. So I was just like, no one's going to ever believe this, that he's like a leading man quality. And then Grace Anatomy comes out. and yeah. I'm like, oh, shit. I guess every woman's disagreeing with me right now. Those eyes. Oh, that such just, a good show. When you know, I that's my other one. Sorry, guys. I that's feel my like Patrick one. Dempsey would really get
0: me. I, I really
1: show. feel like he would get me. Mick Dreamy knows what's going on with Mike.
2: Another thing <laughs> I like about Scream 3, though, is this, like, really subtle romance um, between Sid and him. Yeah. Like, it's it's done pretty well where it's not over the top and it's just, like, and at the end you kind of see that he's, you know, he's there with the popcorn watching a movie with her. Um and I think it's kind of nice that they give her her that in a not over the top sort of way, not a forced sort of thing where it's just like very organic. Is it a friendship? Is it a romantic relationship? Um, it feels like very mature almost.
0: What I love about that scene, too, is it's really goofy when he <laughs> like pops his head. On, hey, I've got the popcorn. He's got this like yeah. super goofy grin on his face. Um yeah. What I do like too, like you mentioned, like the romance being subtle and like Sydney kind of owning things. Like at one point, he's like, Well, you can call me Mark. He's like, I'll call you Mark when you like find the fucking killer. Until yeah. then, you're Detective Kincaid, like, Dude, don't try to get in my pants right now. I don't want to get my throat cut. You know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I really do like that part. And also, he's very handsome. <laughs> I do think that the
1: movie uh, itself has a lot of really good ideas uh i saw this documentary a few years ago and i don't remember what the actress's name was but it was basically the marine prescott of scream 3 uh oh god what was that actor's name yeah had you know these producers uh promised her so much she went and there was like the mansion and all these producers basically gang raped her and I, I think that Scream Three, like just that story, I think is very compelling. I just think it's kind of in the wrong movie. And it is really interesting to me how basically Miramax put out Scream Three, which is a movie in a lot of ways, you know, before its time. Like pointing a finger at Harvey Weinstein, which is uh, who was obviously a steaming pile of shit, kind of like the Lance Hendrickson character.
0: I think the documentary is Girl Twenty Seven.
1: Okay. There we go. I'll just oh, throw that I out
0: there. That. I um, that. It, yeah. Do you? Here's a question. I'll throw this out. Do you think that when Harvey Weinstein saw this, anything hit home to him? I mean, I, he strikes me as the kind of monster where like this would all go above his head.
1: Uh, you know, I think he. I think Harvey Weinstein, from what I've heard from people that worked for him, uh, uh, he he definitely knew exactly what he was doing. He okay. he knew exactly. The fingers being pointed at him but he lived in that he lived in that kind of like thing where you know he's untouchable so i think a film like scream 3 that actually addresses some of the stuff going on behind the scenes at miramax you know he probably didn't care because he thought he was untouchable at the moment
2: yeah yeah i imagine he just didn't care or even like guys like that like with such an ego a you know megalomaniac type personality like Sure, maybe he saw parallels between his behavior, but probably didn't really even think much of it. Like, mm-hmm. I. But who knows? It's hard to say what was in somebody's head. That yeah, like that's that. true. I don't want <laughs> to. I don't want to get in his head.
0: <laughs> Understandable. So, what else do we have to say about Scream 3 at this point?
1: Uh, I like the fact that uh, Scott Foley broke Lance Hendrickson's nose.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess Hendrickson was pissed um, when he gets tossed to the ground like he is handcuffed or has his arms duct taped behind him and Scott Foley like basically like suplexes him to the floor and (laughs) smashes his face on the ground. Like Lance Hendrickson is like a national treasure. Like, how, how does that happen? What do we think of Hendrickson having like a Terminator type? Um, statue in his office since he was almost the original Terminator
1: I think that's a good touch as like a film yeah. nerd that that worships those kind of you know things that never happened like I'm so obsessed with movies that either didn't happen or mm-hmm. versions that you know were supposed to be like I, I think that's funny to look at
2: yeah I like it I, I like all those sort of things and that's one of the things the screen movies generally do well is adding all sorts of little hints and nods some of them more subtle some of them yeah. hitting you over the head
1: i think yeah yeah honestly I, I just have a small thing i think what scream 3 did and its legacy ultimately was making it really hard for us to get scream 4 for quite some time
0: mm.
1: uh, you know there there are there are definitely uh people that appreciate it but i feel like it was such a step back that maybe that's why it took so long for the fourth film to get made hmm.
2: I think it was How a good thing that, that it took so long for Scream 4 to get made. Because I feel like we would have got something more formulaic again. Yeah. Like, And I like that the time has passed. And you get to, again, return and see what these characters are doing after the time has passed. And, like, technology has changed. Because I think Scream 4 actually does, which you guys are going to talk about soon, which does such a good job of, um, like, when I was... When I was originally going to see Scream 4, I'm like, how, what else are they going to do that's new? Like, how how are they returning to this? And um, I was pleasantly surprised in the way that they were able to modernize it and update it. I think if Scream 4 had come out two years after Scream 3 or whatever, it would have been really difficult for them to, to innovate.
1: No, I definitely think the time that passed between them was a good thing. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. Scream 4 god I, I keep saying positive things about the series damn it I, I i do i do feel like scream Four was kind of a uh return to form for the series for
0: sure i think that the scream 3 hurts the legacy a little bit of the original of the original trilogy of films i think the way it ended because i, cause I do think it, you know, I think there was a long time where people kind of forgot about the Scream movies. I actually went back and read, read my review of Scream 4, and I'm like, man, I like the movie, but I was way snarkier about it than I would be now. And I think that's colored by how I thought of Scream 3 overall, because I absolutely love the first movie and really enjoy the second one um Becky, i think that's a really good point like you kind of took these movies as far as they could go and having 10 years in between them not only allowed the technology to evolve and how we interact with one another but during that decade you saw so many trends rise and fall in horror whether it was These new young filmmakers like Eli Roth and Rob Zombie, um, coming to prominence and then kind of falling back a little bit by this, by 2011, um, Japanese horror, having a huge influence, the rise of like found footage movies, just kind of like hitting its stride, you know, and the biggest thing of all, I would say were like movies like Saw and everything like that came out in its wake after that overall, um, you had you know some time to look back and reflect on horror. I call Scream Four, and we'll definitely talk about it a lot more next time we get together, um like Wes Craven's old Man yelling in a cloud movie because it is a little bit of that, but I also find myself not being able to disagree with his criticisms of horror as it was in two thousand and
1: eleven. yeah oh, i I couldn't agree more,
0: so. All right. So that concludes our talk on Scream three. Becky, where can folks find you on the internet?
2: Oh yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Becky M Sayers. Um, yeah. Or just Google my name.
0: <laughs> okay. And you're on your way to Crypticon. What's going on there?
2: Yeah. Crypticon Seattle. It's our, our little local horror con up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, doing some panels. Uh, it's, Day three of it. It's the last day. Um, it's been uh, super fun. Uh, get to. I'm really looking forward to something called the pitch panel that I'm doing. Um, Jonah Ray of, um, you know, Mystery Science Theater is uh, moderating it, and we basically get to pitch all the sequels and reboots uh, um, that we would like to see that haven't been done. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I'm going to have a lot of fun with that.
0: (laughs) So which one are you, what are you advocating for? What sequel or reboot are you going to go to the mat for?
2: Oh gosh. Um, I have a few different ones. I would love to see another adaptation of Richard Matheson's hell house. Mm. Uh, the, there was one, you know, the legend of hell house that was done in the seventies, which is great. I love it. Um, but with, um, You know, the advances in technology, like they did a fantastic job with that film with like nothing looks like cheesy in it, which is incredible. Uh, But I think now with um, modern technology and special effects, you could do some really awesome things. And uh, it's also one of those films that is uh, like the book is really dark and has. uh, I think they had to play it a little bit safe with the film. Uh, and I think you could just go all out on, on that one. So I'd love to see that. Uh, yeah, I, ha- I have a long list of things that I could talk about, so hmm. probably don't want to open up that can of worms. At the okay. End.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> I would love to, <laughs> I would love to have you on again, Becky, when we talk about mood, cause I think you and I are of the same mind and I think the three of us are where we have introduced our children, to movies way younger at an age is way younger than most parents would, and regret absolutely nothing about it. Um. Yeah. So as films come up, you know, when we go through the list, like my daughter has seen Scream and Scream Four, um, and has really enjoyed them both. Like her favorite movie right now is A Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three. She thinks it's the greatest movie of all time. Um i would this love to have super
2: fun for kids oh my God, it really it's a fantasy ends. fulfillment movie for kids it's, I mean, awesome.
0: it's it's really like the toy story of slasher movies as far <laughs> as i'm concerned um but i think that like having like a big maybe like parents group discussing that might even be a side thing we fucking do like parents and horror because i'm just spitballing here i'll have Dude, twenty that episodes. great I have 50 episodes planned by Tuesday, um, <laughs> but I just think it'd be a lot of fun to talk about that and how they react um, to horror overall, but thank you so yeah. much for joining us. Is there anything else you want to promote before we boot you here?
2: Uh, no, no, that's, it's, it's all good. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been a lot of fun.
0: It is a pleasure. Having a you on. Jerry, why don't you tell folks what we have coming up after we finish with Scream 4? What's the next series we're tackling here?
1: Oh, boy. Uh, The next series that we're tackling after the Scream films is uh, my personal favorite franchise of all time. Uh, Halloween's my favorite movie of all time, and I have such a love for uh, four or five of those movies. But the Friday the 13th series is just my shit. I love that series more than anything. I love that series more than I love my children. So we are definitely going to tackle Friday the 13th. Every film will have its own episode, and we will we're definitely going to be getting into the TV show as well. So pretty we have some
0: it. guests lined up already that I'm really a excited <laughs> for. Um, so, you know, that's the thing is we want to bring on different guests for every single episode to talk about these weeks. I just think that makes it way more fun and you get different perspectives. And I get tired of hearing my voice. I got to tell you, man, I am a little bit intimidated by cover about covering the Friday series right now. Really? Why? Um, because like, it's such, it's not my favorite franchise. I would say my favorite franchise is probably a nightmare on Elm Street or or Halloween. Um, but I do love these movies, but (sighs) this is going to sound awful. The, the movies are so basic in their concept that like, what I love to do is like digging into the history and diving deep into them. Um, like it's a lot harder to do that. Um, I'm going back and watching a bunch of them out of order. And like, I think what's really interesting, we'll talk more about it. We get to it is like how there's a clear delineation in the tone and feel of the first four versus like six through 10. Um, And also there's not a lot of good Friday the 13th podcasts out there. There's one really good one um, kill by kill, but I tried a few others and there was just not a lot to say. Oh, wow. So I'm really interested to hear, you know, like one of them, like we don't like horror movies. We just thought this was a funny title for a podcast and we don't even really like these movies. And then it was like 30 minutes of them ripping every movie to shred. And I'm like, oh, I can't think of anything more boring and stupid than that.
1: Yeah, that definitely won't be happening with.
0: with so us. I think. This will be a love letter to those series. I'm interested as to why. I can't wait to hear why you don't really like the first movie. I was ready to defend the remake to the death, and then I watched it right after the first movie, and I'm like, ooh, yeah, I like, I like the 1980 version a lot more. Oh, wow, I can't wait for that. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, after that, I think we're going to like just pick... A series at random we're gonna throw a bunch of titles out there and then have like an old random generator pick what we should watch at that point for the next one that should be a lot of fun so all right man what do you have coming up
1: uh well i am going to be in a documentary called direct video uh basically uh it's a lot of people talking about the experience of growing up in the video store era and being really obsessed with those movies that just went straight to video. me I'm a huge fan of the relentless movies so I'll probably be talking about that every time that I'm interviewed for that. that uh, I write for screen magazine, ghastly grinning, that kind of stuff you can find me like I say on episode every episode Twitter at Jerry is just okay. Uh, other than that I, I'm definitely around.
0: Excellent. Well, we want to thank everybody for listening today. I hope you enjoyed our talk on Scream 3. Uh, We hope you like what we have coming up in the future. Here's how you can help us out right now. The podcast is as actually as we record this, the episodes aren't out yet. Uh, Tomorrow, the first two episodes come out. Uh, What we really need are reviews. If you can go on to iTunes, to Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a five-star review, that really helps us out. That helps a lot more people find the podcast. So give us a five-star review. Say nice things about us. Um, that would be wonderful. Like, I, It's the easiest thing you can do that helps us right away. We want to make this as interactive as possible. You can find us on Twitter at Pod and Pendulum, and you can email us at um, Pod and the Pendulum at Gmail. Uh, part of the pendulum podcast at gmail.com that's where you can go to kind of drop us a note let us know if you agree what we've had to say about these movies so far you know what these movies meant to you when they first came out and what you want to see us cover uh in the future uh jerry and i have said like with we get to say 200 followers on twitter we will actually live tweet one of the Friday the 13th movies. Maybe we'll even put it to a poll and let you guys pick out which one we should do. Um, but we, I kind of want to interact with as many people as possible when we do this. So, you know, once again, thank you everybody for listening. Have a fantastic week, and we will see you next week when we break down Scream 4 and put the series to rest before we tackle the Friday the 13th movies. Thank you all.
2: See this? This is my boomstick!